As I said earlier, we're in a series called Story of God, and we're looking at the whole story of the Bible to see what God's been up to. We've been pretty upfront, I hope, that we're kind of staking our claim on one big theme. What's the main idea? And it's this, that Christ is the thread that ties it all together. So we're kind of looking at two big questions. What, what is the story? And then what in the world does that story mean for me? And Christ is the bridge that connects those two questions. So last week, Pastor Al did a great job of beginning our series at the beginning, looking at creation, looking at the fall into sin, and looking at the promise that God left us with. Because when you read Genesis 1 and 2 and you see the beauty of creation and you see sinlessness and you see perfection and you see man in perfect harmony with God, with the world, with one another. And then in Genesis 3 when you see man and woman sin turn from God. If we were totally ignorant of whatever else were going to happen later on in the Bible, in this moment we would sense extreme hopelessness. How in the world could this fellowship be restored? How in the world could things be put right? God gave some pretty horrible curses. There would be pain in childbearing. There would be pain in work. There would be toil. The ground would no longer be our friend, but it would be difficult to do what we were called to do now. What hope is there? And then in Genesis 3.15, God gives hope. He says, one day the offspring of woman is going to crush the head of the offspring of the serpent. Now, he'll bruise his heel, but the offspring of woman will crush his head. So here we are left at the end of Genesis chapter 3 with this anticipation, right? Try to put yourself in the story. I know it's hard because maybe you've read the Bible before, maybe you know how this thing ends and thank God for that hope, but let's try to put ourselves in this moment in Genesis 3. So if you're there, if you're with Adam and Eve, and if you're one of their kids, I know Al talked about Cain and Abel, and then he talked about Seth, and then later on in Genesis, kind of in between chapter 3 and where we're at in chapter 12, there's a lot of genealogies. This person had this kid, had this kid, had this kid, and it just goes on and on. If you're these people, what kind of hope do you have? And here's the answer. Who's the, who's the offspring of woman? I mean, let's use our imaginations. Do you think that with every kid that would be born, they were going, do you think this could be it? Do you think this could be the one? Do you think they came to... Noah, and look how the Bible reads in Genesis 6. There's Noah. God has favor on Noah. He has grace towards Noah. And Noah was a righteous man who walked with God. Do you, do you think this is it? Do you think this is the one? Could this be the offspring of woman that would save all of mankind? And then you see God pour out his wrath in the flood. Because he said the earth was so wicked that God was actually sorry that he made man. So he pours out his wrath in the flood, but he saves Noah and his family. And his, this, the idea that you see here is recreation. So God's already starting this theme of, I'm going to recreate everything. There's going to be a new creation. And in this moment, in Genesis 6, he's doing it through Noah. And then as the flood comes and sin is wiped out, 
there's a tiny glimmer of, is sin gone? Is the head of the serpent crushed? And it doesn't take long for us to see in Noah's drunken stupor that sin is anything but gone. As he's not been off of the ark mere days and he finds himself drunk. He finds his daughter-in-laws taking advantage of him. And we quickly realize sin has not gone. And the reason sin has not gone is because while the flesh, physical people may be wiped out, sin is much deeper than that. So then we come to the story of Abram. He's not yet Abraham, but you may know him as Abraham. God changes his name later on to make a very important point in his life. But right now he's just Abram. So how will the story of God continue with Abram? That's what we're looking at this morning. How will Abram move us closer to the offspring of woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent, who's going to destroy sin, and who's going to bring us back into right relationship with God? How will Abram do that? Let's look at the text this morning, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The first point that we can see in Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three, is that the story of God rests on his sovereign grace. I think we see that in three ways. The first one is that God takes the initiative. Look at verse one. We see God reaching out to Abram, not the other way around. We don't see Abram coming to God saying, hey God, I know you've got this plan, this offspring of woman. I think I can help. Like, I, I mean, I don't know what else you got going on, but I mean, I'd be willing. All right, I could do it. You're trying to do like the humble assert yourself thing, right, that we've all done. Hey, I, I'd be, I could do it. I don't know who else is going to lead this thing, but yeah, I'll be a part. That's not what we see, right? It says, the Lord said to Abram. We find out later in Joshua chapter 24 that Abram's context, we don't get the full context right here because Joshua tells us that Abram from Ur of the Chaldeans, he was an idol worshiper. Well, that adds a whole new layer of interesting facts about Abram, right? Abram's not this guy who's just seeking the Lord and God's like, man, you got it, Abram. So I'm going to use you. No, Abram's in this far off land worshiping idols and God takes the initiative. But isn't this what God's done since the beginning of the story? I mean, the whole story begins with God already on the scene, He takes the gracious initiative to create a good world. I mean, that was the initiative of God. He didn't have to create. He doesn't need creation. He doesn't need us. He was perfectly happy and content in himself because he is the greatest good. But he takes the initiative to create a good world. Then he takes the gracious initiative to give man every good gift on the earth. Even after they sin, God still takes the gracious initiative to pursue Adam and Eve in the garden and have a conversation about what happened in their sin. 
Now in the life of Abram, we see again that God has taken the gracious initiative to speak to one of his image bearers. So in this way, the story of God completely depends on God's sovereign grace. It's his grace that he takes the initiative because we don't deserve for him to. And it's sovereign because he is in control to take initiative. God takes the initiative. But we see, what does he take the initiative to do in this text? God takes the initiative to make promises. Look at this repeating phrase. Three verses, this phrase comes up five times. God is speaking and he says, I will. And here's what he says. I will show you the land. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. The last verse also kind of constitutes a promise because God is saying that all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So look at the way God is taking the initiative not just to do anything. He's taking the initiative to make promises. And when you look at the promises he's making, it, it brings us all the way back to Genesis 1 again because in Genesis 1 verses 26 through 28, God is saying, I want you to have dominion over the whole earth, be fruitful and multiply. Then in Genesis chapter nine, God tells Noah after the flood, hey, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. Okay, if this is repeating, maybe God's trying to tell us something about what his desire is. His desire in Genesis one was to take man and woman who were image bearers of God. That means they had a perfect relationship with him and they connected with him perfectly. And he said, I want you to fill the earth with those kind of people. Fill the earth with worshipers of me. Then what does he do with Noah? Be fruitful and multiply. Hey, I'm starting over and I'm starting over with you and your family. So fill the earth with people who know me, who love me. Fill the earth with those kind of people. In Genesis 12, God's had enough. God's no longer telling Abraham, Abram, be fruitful and multiply. No, God tells Abram, I will make you a great nation. No longer putting it in your hands. No longer asking you to do it. No longer thinking this thing depends on you. I'm now telling you that I will. What a beautiful picture. God's will is, is being taken into his own hands. So God takes the initiative. He takes the initiative to make promises. God takes the initiative to make promises that will lead to blessing for all the nations. You see what he says there? And it, it can be kind of difficult to understand. And we're reading it with an interesting lens because we kind of know how the story unfolds. But look what he says. He's telling him to leave, right? Go from your country. Go from your kindred. Go from your father's house. Go from everything that's familiar to you. He says, to a land that I will show you. So go, I'll show you. And he says, I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The reason God is taking initiative, the reason he's taking initiative to make promises is so that there can be blessing to all the nations. Do you see the connection with Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter nine? He's saying, fill the earth with worshipers. And now finally God's saying, I promise you that in you, Abraham, somewhere down along your family and your offspring, I'm gonna use someone to be a blessing to the nations because I'm gonna fill the earth with worshipers. I'm gonna do it. Genesis 12 is kind of a missionary text. Because God's telling Abram, I'm going to use you to bless the whole world. 
So somewhere in Abram's offspring is going to come the offspring of woman that's been hoped for. So God's narrowed the search. In Genesis 1 through 11, God's been spanning thousands of years with the story, all these generations. But then from chapters 12 to 50, it roughly spans about three or four generations of people. You see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then you see Jacob's sons. Why spend all of those chapters on just a few people and so few chapters on all those people? It's because God's narrowing down to the family of Abram and saying, through this family, I'm going to do my work. Through this family, the offspring of woman is going to come who's going to bring salvation to the world. We see God's heart for the nations in this text. We know that later on down the story, there's going to be Abraham's son, Isaac, his grandson, Jacob, who's later renamed Israel. And then there you have the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. Uh, But before we get to the people of Israel, the Jews, the story of the Exodus, the law, and the promised land, we get to see the why behind it all. And the why is that God's heart is to be worshipped by all people. It's to be worshipped by the nations. The psalm we read this morning to start our time of worship was Psalm 67, and the psalmist is saying, let the nations be glad. Notice how God is speaking to Abraham, saying, I'm going to bless you, but it doesn't end there. I'm going to bless you so that you'll be a blessing. That's how God works with his people. He's saying, I'm going to bless you so that you'll be a blessing. Look at Psalm 67. Oh God, be gracious to us and bless us. How often do our prayers end there? Bless us, God. We, we need your grace. Oh, we need the gospel, God. We need your word. Oh, help us. Help me not to sin, God. Help me to pursue holiness. Oh, Jesus, would you be formed in me? Live your life through me. Amen. Psalm 67 says, be gracious to me, bless me, so that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. The reason we're blessed is to be a blessing. The reason God's blessing Abraham is to be a blessing. God's heart is to do through you what he's doing in you. That was God's heart with Abram, and that's God's heart with us. So we see the why behind this entire story. We see the why behind God calling Abram, and then this is where we get to the beauty of Jesus because Galatians 3, 7 through 9 says that the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. See, this word gospel that we use, I I really hope you get this, and this just becomes a part of our culture here at Shalford. The word gospel means good news. So the good news was preached to Abraham here in Genesis chapter 12, the gospel Right? We think the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or the Gospels, you know, it's only in the New Testament. Well, no, the Gospels right here in Genesis chapter 12. How? Because it's telling Abraham that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, what's good news about that? Well, when we look to Jesus, we see this promise fulfilled. We see it fulfilled that all the nations can be blessed Because Jesus comes from the line of Abraham. Jesus was a Jew. He was a part of the people of Israel. So through Abraham, way down thousands of years later, you get Jesus. 
who came to live a perfect life in relationship with God, who came to be perfect in his obedience, who came to be perfected in his suffering so that he could be made like you and I, so then he could take a death that he didn't deserve in our place, and then he could come out the other side of death victorious, be raised from the dead, which no one's ever been able to do before because we all deserve death. And he did all of that so that we could identify with him in his life, death, and resurrection, and we could have the hope of life in Christ. And the good news about that for the nations is what Jesus says in Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Go, therefore, to all these nations, all these ethnos, all these people groups, and bring this good news that there is life available in Christ This is how Christ is the thread that ties together Genesis chapter 12. He's the one that fulfills this promise. The way God fulfills the promise to Abram that through him the whole world will be blessed is that through Abraham came Jesus and through Jesus all the nations can be blessed. There's also another side to this story though. So we said we're going to ask what's the story and what does it mean for us? So here's the first point. What's the story? The story's resting on God's sovereign grace. And his sovereign grace led all of human history to the person and work of Jesus. But what does that mean for us? The story of God rests on his sovereign grace, but the story of God demands our faith. If you go read the book of Romans, you see that Abraham is kind of lifted up as this model of faith. What does that mean and what does that mean for us. Well, when God's word came to Abraham, Abram in Genesis 12, there was one looming question that happens after verse 3 that we read. Would Abram believe God? At this point, Abram is about 75 and has no children. And the way you became a nation in these times is that you had kids who had kids who had kids. So Abram's probably reading between the lines going, hey, I don't, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if my wife can do that. And if you keep reading, as Al's going to talk about next week as he dives into more of the story of Abraham, you'll see that they really do wrestle. And Abraham comes to God and says, you gave me the promise. Look, we did. We left our homeland. But how do I know I'm going to have an offspring? And God makes some really awesome promises to him and And then he tells him at one point, you're going to have a kid. And so Sarah laughs. So they named their kid Isaac, which means he laughs. It means laughter. And so Abram's looking at these promises going, really? Kids, I'm 75 years old. You want me to have kids? You want me to have become a nation? And not even just that, but look at what God asked him to do. He he said to leave his home, leave his family, leave his people. And then God will just show him where he's going as he goes. What a crazy call. So he's 75 years old and doesn't have kids. He's told to leave his home and go to a place that God's going to show him down the road. Does Abram believe this? Does he actually do what God's telling him to do? The the answer is yes. In Romans 4, 20 and 21, gives us a little bit of an explanation. 
No unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. I've always found encouragement from that verse because it says no unbelief made him waver. It does not say Abraham had no unbelief. So if you're like me this morning and you're skeptical and you struggle with unbelief and you wrestle with your faith, welcome. Abraham is with us. Right? It says no unbelief made him waver. Unbelief's okay. Come to Jesus with your unbelief. And let's work to redefine what faith really means. Because I don't think faith is just mental acknowledgement that God exists. I think it can't be less than that, but but it's got to be more than that. Right? It can't just be this mental checkbox like, yeah, I believe there's a God. I was talking about this in our discipleship group on Friday with Robert and Justin. We were just going like, what's faith? And we were reading Galatians 2.20 where it says, this life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And we went, okay, if we live by faith, what is it? And we kind of said the same thing. It can't just be this mental like, yep, God's, God's there. He's, he exists. That cannot be what faith is. See, God's chosen to save us through faith alone. We contribute nothing to our salvation. There's no good work we can bring to the table that makes it easier for God to save us. All we can do is respond to what God's done in faith. So let me try to define faith for us this morning. Faith is our unwavering trust that God's promises are the best thing for us and that he is able to fulfill those promises. Faith actually works to glorify God because it proves him to be powerful and us to be completely and utterly weak and incapable. Faith glorifies God. And here's the irony of faith. We think, I've been trying to repent this morning of this thought, but we think about everything. If I can get better, if I can get stronger, if I can get wiser, if I can get smarter, I'll have a better grasp on life. Faith does not work that way. Your faith grows stronger as you grow weaker. Your faith grows stronger as you grow weaker. Think think about this with me. If you're stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger, you don't need to have faith in anything else because you know you can do it. The stronger I see myself, the less faith I need or want because why would I depend on anyone outside of me? I'm pretty self-sufficient. That's why it's interesting to talk to people about the context in which we minister here in East Cobb and talk to people who are in extreme poverty or inner city areas or things like that. And they're like, man, what kind of challenges do you have? And I say, dude, people in our area don't need anything. They go buy it, right? The median income is like $130,000 plus a year per household. People don't have needs here. So why would they need faith? The stronger we grow, the weaker our faith grows because we don't need anything because we can provide everything so we think within ourselves. But the Bible says faith in God grows stronger as we grow weaker. Because as we grow weaker, we have nowhere else to turn. So let's look at Abram. No kids. No idea where he's going. What does faith look like? 
It's a trust. Not just that God is able to fulfill his promises. Because if that's all we believe, that God's able to fulfill it, then it's possible to have begrudging, sad, depressing faith. Right? Well, this is what God said, so I gotta go do it. I mean, he can, so I just gotta go. Faith is two things. Belief that God is able to do what he's promised to do, but it's the belief that what he has promised to do is the best thing for us. And that's what leads our faith to be joyful. So our faith grows stronger as we grow weaker, as we see ourselves for who we really are. Faith exalts and glorifies and praises God. It glorifies him as the wise one who came up with the promise plan. It glorifies him as the gracious one who offered the promise to us. It glorifies him as the powerful one who is able to bring the promises to completion even in the most impossible situations. It glorifies him as the good one who promises what is best for us. And as you read down that list, it glorifies God as wise. How does our faith in God all wise glorify him? We are not wise enough to come up with such a great plan of salvation. We are not gracious enough. I'm not gracious enough. I want to give people what they deserve. I want to give everyone what they deserve except for me. But we can glorify God as gracious because he offered his promise to us who didn't deserve it. God's powerful. We could not save ourselves. So faith in God says, I can't. I, I have no hope. This is why faith is only possible at the end of ourselves. Because we've got to realize we have nowhere else to turn. We've got no hope, no ability. We cannot do it. That's what faith is. It's throwing yourself into the arms of God because he's the only one who can save us. So Abram, Abraham's faith actually grew stronger in moments of greatest weakness. His faith didn't grow stronger when he felt the strongest or the most confident or the most sure of himself. So think with me about Romans 4, 20 and 21. No unbelief made him waver. Why? Because even in his unbelief, he sensed his own weakness. He said, God, I'm not even strong enough to believe you. I'm not even strong enough to be confident in your promises. I'm so weak and despairing. Where do I go? In the same way, I pray that our faith grows strongest when we grow weakest. As we see ourselves to be weaker and weaker, God is shown to be bigger and bigger. Pastor Al always says true worship is when we look at God for who he is and then we look at who we are in light of him. My prayer is that that always leads us to faith. That always leads us to faith. Please don't miss this. I, I believe this is the very heart of Christianity. That we're not a people who have it together. I know a church in Nashville and the pastor is called Emmanuel, and they have this saying called the Emmanuel mantra. And they say, I'm a complete idiot, and my future is extremely bright, and anybody can get in on this. What a glorious mantra. <laughs> I'm a complete idiot. I mean, just total. 
but my future is bright. And anybody can get in on this too. That's the heart of Christianity. Not that we're the people that have it together. We're the people with the answers. That we're the people that have all the right things in life and our values are good. Now I've got to get good enough to go. And, and then once I go, gosh, they're going to be looking at me a certain way. No, no, no. We're all complete idiots. We, we don't know. We're sinners. We're not people with the answers. We're weak. We're heavy laden. We're tired. We're carrying around burdens. We're imperfect. We still sin. The heart of Christianity is that faith says, even though all that's true, we have a good God who's loved us and cared for us and given us Christ to save us. That's the heart of what we believe. Not that we're strong, but that we're really weak. So let's get to some application today. When we talk about faith, the question's not whether you have faith. The question's what is your faith in? Because if faith, like we said, is unwavering trust that God's promises are the best thing for us, then think about this with me. You always have faith in something, but just take out the word God. Faith is our unwavering trust that something is the best thing for us. The question is, what is that something for you? What is that something? What is the thing you're operating out of faith in that you're believing this is gonna complete me? The promises that this thing or this person offers me These promises, that's true life. Faith is our belief that we will have what we hope for. Look at Hebrews 11.1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. So it's this firm trust in someone or something that can deliver true life. So who are you believing today for true life? What are you trusting to bring you joy happiness, satisfaction, completion, comfort? What are you trusting today to solve your problems? What are you trusting? What is your faith in? So here's the call to faith today. We all need to put our faith in Christ. Some of us need to put our faith in Christ for the very first time. And that is a moment of joy and celebration that I pray you never forget when you put your faith in Christ for the very first time. This is not a work that you accomplish. You don't muster up enough faith. You come to him at your wit's end and throw yourself on him. And Ephesians 2 says, God makes us alive. So some of us need to put our faith in Christ for the very first time so that God can make us alive because you have nowhere else to go but Jesus. And we want to celebrate that with you. We want to baptize you to picture the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. So for the first time, some of us need to put our faith in Jesus, but some of us need to put our faith in Jesus for the 10,000th time. Some of us need to turn to Christ again from the thing that we've been believing can save us. We trust Christ with our eternal destiny, but with our day-to-day joy, we trust in something else. If only if I can just get, if I can just finish, if I can just have, then, if I can just achieve this standard of living, surely my problems will fade. So we need to turn 
And some of us need to put our faith in Christ for the 10,000th time. So the call is the same for all of us. Let's put our faith in Christ today. Let's put our faith in Christ. The other call that I want to highlight today is the call to go to the nations. Part of what Abraham's call was, was to leave everything that made him comfortable. Everything he knew, everything he loved, everyone he knew, to leave it and go pursue God's call so that he could be a blessing to the nations. I pray that God calls people from our church to go to the nations. We want to be a sending church. We say every week at the end of our gatherings, you are sent. So I pray we would all wrestle. Carrie and I have wrestled and still wrestle with this question. Not why should I go, but why should I stay? We don't want to assume that we stay. We want to assume that we go and let God tell us to stay. Because we want our prayer to be, let the nations be glad in Christ and God use me to do it. Some of you may need to submit to a call to spend time among the nations making Christ known. There's ways to do that that don't require 40 years. There's ways to do that for a couple weeks a year. There's ways to do that as a midterm missionary where you spend nine months or a year or two years. But there's also ways to give your life and spend a career as a missionary overseas in another country. And we're working right now to, to provide opportunities and on-ramps for you to sign up to be a part of mission trips or we're gonna go to other countries and actually support churches there and encourage pastors and other believers and then participate with them in the work that's going on there. But our call, when we experience the blessedness of God and we realize our faith is in Jesus and we can like Jake led us today, this incredibly joyful worship, when we participate in that, I pray it always overflows to the nations. So the call is twofold today. Let's come back and put our faith in Jesus. And let's go to the nations with the good news of the gospel.